0: Hi there. I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast on this show. I have long informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic survey in Cambridge, UK. And for this episode, I'm really happy to bring you Dr. Rachel McCrary. I've known Rachel for a long time. We went to grad school together in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, that's where we got to know each other. We talk about that in the episode. So Rachel works as a project scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, also known as NCAR, in Boulder, Colorado. Let me tell you a little bit about what she works on. So she currently has a joint appointment in the Computational and Information Systems Laboratory and the Research Applications Laboratory at NCAR. Her work is centered on the analysis of the uncertainty in climate change projections for North America using global and regional climate model ensembles. Rachel uses climate models to understand seasonal changes in precipitation. We talk a bit about that work. She's currently focused on analyzing future changes in North American snowpack, land-atmosphere coupling, tropical moisture sources for precipitation extremes, and drought. And also, kind of from a techniques perspective, she's interested in comparing methods of downscaling climate change information to impact relevant scales. And that we dig into a bit. That's a really interesting area of application that we get into. She's currently working on projects to compare dynamical and statistical methods of downscaling. And she also runs the statistical downscaling model over North America. All that nice stuff we cover pretty much in the first hour of the podcast. That's often how the show goes, right? The first hour or so is research-focused, more or less. I mean, I want to keep it conversational, but research-focused, more or less, for the first hour. And then in the second hour, we talk about her pathway into science. We talk about how the two of us met. uh, And we talk a bit about mental health in science both as a student and as someone who's working in the field and i think that was one of my favorite parts of this conversation so that's kind of closer to the end i will hope you'll stick around for that mental health chat where we talk about our experiences in that realm so thanks again to rachel for taking the time out to talk with me over zoom I had a really good time, we had a really good conversation, I hope that you all enjoy it as well. It was a joy for me, I hope it's uh, enjoyable for all of you, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Okay, gonna keep the intro short this time, let's just go ahead and jump into this conversation with Dr. Rachel McCrary. Here we go. Made a dumb joke the other day where I said, "Well, you know who who really has it hard right now is house thieves. Everybody's home. <laughs> like, <laughs> feel bad. For well, them.
1: now they're just breaking into cars.
0: <laughs> cars, yeah, cars and businesses. Now they can break into the businesses. Nobody's there. Oh man, yeah,
1: yeah. I've heard some really terrible things that people are doing, and it it just makes me sad that." no matter where you're at, people will take advantage because apparently people were scamming older people on that next door app and Mm. getting them to like, give them money to buy groceries and then not buying their groceries. So.
0: Right. Yeah. (sighs) I think that's a pretty small fraction of people though, to be fair. You know, I think the vast majority of people are doing what they're supposed to do and they're being helpful and they're not uh, taking advantage of old people. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I think
1: that's actually, but that perspective is really, has a lot to do with your own, like where you're at in psychology, because that idea of, do you think people are generally doing the best they can versus whether people are doing, are really just not ever going to do what they can you know, just kind of this negative point of view versus the positive look at what people are doing. And I definitely fall into that. I think people are doing the best they can with what they've got and doing what they can.
0: Yeah, I think about that sometimes when I talk to some of my friends from high school because it's pretty clear so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush but like you know some of them have ended up in jobs where I I guess for whatever reason you end up encountering um maybe unscrup- unscrupulous people <laughs> or like mm-hmm. people who maybe aren't that concerned with others uh I don't quite know how to put it but they, they're in contact with folks who um, maybe would scam the old lady out of her groceries, right? Like they're away, they're kind yeah. of in, t- in contact with those folks a little bit more often, and they do seem to kind of carry around, on average, a little bit more of an attitude of like, people are terrible, people are horrible, I don't like people. And, yeah. But then, you know, me, me and the people that I get to interact with at, at work, it's much easier to maintain a positive optimistic attitude when you're hanging around with people who you know they they definitely wouldn't scam an old lady out of groceries in fact they might they might like try to help the old lady with groceries maybe yeah um so I think that's a kind of privilege I guess and I do sometimes wonder yeah I do sometimes wonder if my my optimism and my basic faith in humanity is like influenced by the fact that I'm surrounded by pretty good people. Most of the time, I'm pretty Mm -hmm. much all the time. And maybe it's harder to be optimistic if you're surrounded by folks who would steal from old ladies.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. I do. I mean, I think your personal experiences, whether it's how you grow up or just where you're at in life now, those things really can form how you view the world. And I think you can, those can change when really negative things happen to you or, you know, you go through a lot of just thinking about why you think about the world and how you can change that perspective for sure. Uh, but yeah, it actually just, I guess that's, I kind of sometimes have to remind myself of the really good positives about our job, you know, being a scientist and what those are. And cause it's easy to kind of get down on yourself, but that's one of them really having a good workforce that you're interacting with on a daily basis or just throughout our careers. Also just the flexibility to work when you need to work from where you need to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The people are usually like, you know, pretty, pretty moral and considerate of other people and they're sensitive and they try to have empathy and okay. Not a hundred percent of people, you know, do that a hundred percent of the time, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's easier to maintain this kind of positive view of humanity when you're surrounded by good people. And you're right, that is like being a scientist is totally, it gives us, that's one of the the privileges of it. Um, and one of the places that I guess we have to be careful and watch our privilege and stuff. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm probably not doing. I, I could probably do more of really trying to wrap my head around what a hard time this is for some people. Because mm-hmm. it's rough. I mean, you know, I, it's it's psychologically rough, put it that way, because, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes my kid is struggling and sometimes we're struggling. And just with the idea of being stuck for a while and the kind of um, anxiety that comes along with knowing that going outside at all carries with it some level of risk and an extra level of safety precautions that you now need to take in, into account. Um, so. It's it's rough, but, you know, we have jobs, and we have income, yeah. and we have supplies, and we're okay. We're going to be fine. It's just psychologically rough, and it it's hard to fully, like, wrap my head around what a hard time this actually is for some people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, just in terms of actual supply-level problems and things. Um, but I don't know if you're talked out. Do you, do you get to talk about this stuff much? Is everybody still talking about it, or... You know the the kind of new new reality for the next foreseeable future, or has it kind of fizzled out?
1: Um, I think it comes up in every conversation, but yeah. I don't think it's the primary driver behind conversations anymore um, i do I have found that i'm I'm kind of disappointed about this, but I can't ingest the news the way I want to because it really psychologically was impacting me, the level of uncertainty, not having confidence in our our president, just kind of not knowing what's going to happen next, hearing really negative things. I've kind of had to take a step back from that. In some ways, that's protected me. But I also feel like I'm not doing my due diligence of really knowing what's going on in the world. Mm. So maybe I've been talking about it less because I've been reading about it less and having less panic
0: about it (laughs) yeah i think that's healthy to get some distance from it you know
1: yeah
0: i forget where i read this but somebody's suggestion was you can check in on the big scale news maybe like once a week uh other than that listen to your local recommendations you know your local public health Mm -hmm. officials and because they will hopefully be the best plugged into what you should do like in your specific state or county or you know and to give yourself a break, which sounds like that's what you've been doing. You've been giving yourself a break from the, the large scale scary stuff, which you can't control. You have no influence over yeah. that stuff.
1: Yeah. Last week was a really rough week. It's kind of weird. I heard a lot of people struggled for it. So for us, last week was maybe the third full week of this. And I feel mm-hmm. like I really started struggling with, with things. I had a lot of anxiety, just hearing a lot of people in my personal life being impacted uh, much more directly than you know, due to financial concerns or losing their job, just different things. And it just really got to me. And I do feel like I had to kind of come into this week with a different perspective on what I can expect from myself. And I'm a little nervous because it's starting to feel normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, all my contacts are over Zoom. That's normal. Oh, Ben is the only person I see (laughs) in person okay that's that's fine and now i'm like oh going back to the other way of life while it sounds great could also be challenging because i'm adjusting to this yes smaller life this yeah it's not simpler isn't the right word because there are still like going to the grocery store is one of the most complex things now which used to be just a simple drop-in but many aspects of life are so much smaller right now
0: yeah that's true not easier to manage, but yeah, redu- reduced in scope. And yeah. that's true. My, uh, I, I can relate to that. And my, I think my son can also really relate to that because we mentioned that the lockdown was extended for three more weeks today and he got really stressed out, not about the lockdown, but he got stressed out about, oh, at some point I'll have to go back to school because he sort of is already adjusted to this, I think. And he's like, yeah. well, I have I figured this out. I don't want this to change. Like I, I know how to do yeah. this now. Um, so I think he's got a lot of anxiety about that idea of going back. Mm.
1: I think I'm feeling that way about working from home. I mean, I have a really long commute, which makes going into the office a stressful part of my day just because it takes me so long to get there. And I do feel like I, it it's hard. Um, So I I don't have that now. And so I do feel like I have this sense of time and I'm, I'm learning what works for me and what doesn't work for me at home. And it's a really different way of working. I, you know, initially I was like, I'm going to spend eight to nine hours just sitting at my desk, which I immediately failed at doing that. And so Mm -hmm. now it's just trying to find how I piece together when I work, what I work on, what I work, when I schedule meetings, and you're kind of learning that and I'm kind of enjoying many aspects of that part of my job. Um, and I'm forgetting some of the positives of just walking down the hall and talking to somebody.
0: <laughs> right,
1: right. Um, but I know that that is a very important part of my work life. And so I know that we'll need to come back. But yeah, there's just kind of that, that change, is going to be interesting.
0: So Maybe to zoom in a little, what have you been up to just today? Like what's today been like?
1: In my work or just in my day-to-day
0: maybe both yeah
1: Yeah. so uh well we woke up to eight inches of snow and so it was a little bit startling because my husband told me that one of our he looked outside and saw that one of our trees had fallen a really big tree that's in between our two houses like my house and my neighbor's house and so i woke up all in a panic thinking about how we're gonna find someone to come clear out the tree and Oh, right. what's going to cost us and dealing with all these ho- homeowner things. And then I went outside and it's just a branch. And so he nice. stressed me out for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still a huge branch for <laughs> to deal with, but I was like, did it take out the fence? Did it take out our beehives? Like what's happening? And oh, thankfully yeah. I don't think it's as damaging as it can be. And then, um, you know, had breakfast and then I came hmm. in here and I actually listened to a um, networking kind of like I think it's more for postdocs but it was a networking communication collaboration kind of panel it was really hmm. interesting just to get the day going with some positive learning about how other people network in our field which
0: who was uh what so was that through
1: um through NCAR and CU I found the Colorado University of Colorado so okay. I think I'm not exactly sure who hosted it. I think it was the NCAR ASP office hmm. But uh, I had a few different people I actually know and some people I didn't know on the panel. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that I'm an extrovert in our field, which is somewhat rare. I'm not going to say it's rare. There are definitely other extroverts, but generally those soft skill people skills are more what I do well with, but I still find making that connection between knowing someone socially or meeting someone at a meeting and then turning that into an actual collaboration where work is done productively and how do we really make that happen? And so that's one reason why I listened. And I'm not going to say that they changed my worldview on how to network, but it did make me feel like everyone has a different path and that uh, I need to focus on maybe some more intentionality on who I'm trying to collaborate, who I'm reaching out to, to talk to. So
0: that, that was said. Makes- yeah, that makes me think of, I talked to Sonia Legg and also Susan Lozier, and you probably won't know who they are. They're both oceanographers, but they are behind this Empower network, which mm-hmm. Susan Lozier conceived of that. And uh, in part, she, she's part of the set of people who put that together a few years ago. And like uh, the whole goal of that project was to make an intentional network, specifically mm-hmm. to help retain... Uh, women and physical oceanography in positions kind of after postdocs into those, um, you know, between postdocs and those kind of initial longer term type mm-hmm. positions. And that was a word that they used to describe it as well. It's it's just about having an intention and well, let's, let's make this network happen. Let's like do things to fertilize that kind of network. So, yeah. Yeah. So that makes that sense. It
1: sounds like the earth women's science network. I'm probably getting it ESWN. I think I probably mm. get the acronym wrong, but um, that was a very intentional kind of retention network for women in earth science. So physical oceanographers would be part of that. Although I've heard that physical oceanography is one of the harder fields for women. Maybe that's been changing, but uh definitely yeah. earlier on, just very kind of male dominated culture, depending on what school you were in and that, that stuff is all transitioning in the earth science, which is wonderful.
0: Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But uh I think Sonia's it's involved with thing. that as well. If I remember right, I think Sonia's involved with that. Yeah. It's yeah. a very good thing. Yeah. So I, I didn't know that I hadn't heard that physical oceanography was no, <clears throat> more, more male dominated than other, other fields. It's uh less, maybe may-
1: it's just certain departments that I've heard about where I know people who went to school there and have had a hard time or talk about how few women have graduated from those departments. But again, I'm not necessarily talking to my uh, peers or people who are younger than me. It may even be people who are older than me that I'm talking about uh, in terms of going to school. I won't name any names.
0: Right. Yeah. So, how do you have intentionality when you're building a network? So, how do you think you might do that
1: for a personal network? I don't know. That's something I have to really think about. I think I often will suddenly feel when I think the way I do it now is I suddenly feel isolated in my field or lost at what I'm doing, and I just email a bunch of people or go to a meeting and talk to a ton of people because that's very much my personality. And then Mm. uh, I don't always do the best job with following up or revisiting relationships. And uh, so that's something I think I'm going to try to bring into my thought process is really Mm. who, who would be worth reaching out to. And I think something I've heard from a number of Mentorship meetings because I'm becoming a mentor and I'm working with women and other people in the field. I'm working with students. I'm not a professor, but I do get to work with summer interns. I get to work with students who come to visit NCAR. I am a what they call there's a program in the Front Range of Colorado called Progress. Don't ask me what its acronym Mm, is promoting (laughs) geoscience, Uh, working with. Undergrads, putting connecting undergrads with, in geoscience and in science with people in the field uh, and uh, just kind of working with these young students and realizing that I need to start asking people for mentorship, that it's not just going to always be volunteered. Mm. People don't always really know what you need or what you want, but you can ask for that. And most people are fairly open to that. So that's mm. one of the things I'm going to be kind of looking for, I think, coming up. With more intention,
0: yeah. So finding specific people and getting more mm-hmm. specific about the questions, I guess. About getting,
1: yeah, and being more direct about what I would like.
0: Mm. Like I would like, like why advice just, from you.
1: Yeah, why would I? Why are you a person that I admire or see? that you're doing something that I would like to be doing or that you have knowledge about. So, I mean, this brings me like. We haven't talked about this at all yet but um, I've kind of done these different transitions I think throughout graduate school and then into my postdoc and now where I've gone from kind of this pure research kind of um, curiosity driven science to wanting to do something more use inspired that's kind of the jargon people use where it's yeah. not necessarily exactly applied I'm still doing pure science but a lot of the questions I may be kind of trying to work on or try to understand is the relationship between climate science and then how people use climate science to make decisions mm. um, in particular in the hydrology and water resources field. And so to me finding people who actually work at that intersection of between stakeholders and scientists or are scientists working in that arena and really reaching out and finding people who are making that work. Cause it's not the most direct path necessarily. I think some places, that is the direct path. That is the mission. That's not necessarily NCAR's mission. And so finding that is kind of what I'm looking for next. And I, I don't have no, no. I, it's not that I have no network in this. It's just utilizing who I know, talking to who I know, and reaching out and maybe asking for more specific advice.
0: Right. Yeah. Really Can we yeah. talk more about you, about that field? Because that, that field, it sounds interesting, like an interesting intersection that it is interdisciplinary, but in a way that is not what normally what scientists normally think of as interdisciplinary. You know, often we think, Oh, we're going to do physics and biology and we're going to do chemistry and and physics or where, but that's a really interesting kind of connection there. And I've, I've known you've been doing that for a while, but I don't know if we've ever really talked about it in enough, enough depth for me to really get my head around it properly.
1: Yeah, it might be because I haven't been intentional enough in how I do this. So that might be Mm -hmm. why I sometimes just have anxiety about, am I doing this right? Is this what I should be doing? Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of it is, especially in the water resource world, in the Western US, most of our water resources come from snowpack in the mountains. And that's changing rapidly Mm -hmm. as the earth warms, climate patterns change, basically climate change. Sound like a total expert right now?
0: Sorry. You are <laughs> and, um, actually. <laughs>
1: yeah, but so, um, water resource managers, the Bureau of Rec, uh, the um, Army Corps of Engineers, different organizations that really deal with not only with water supply issues and also flooding are really interested in climate change and what it means. What does climate change uncertainty mean for them when they're trying to make decisions about? how the Colorado River will be allocated, water in the Colorado River will be allocated, what will happen to people downstream who have secondary water rights, or what's gonna happen with agriculture, lots of different conflicts there, how much should they be saving, should they be considering their different management practices. And Mm -hmm. I am not a hydrologist and I don't make those decisions, Mm -hmm. but I have a lot of expertise in climate information. And so where I fit into this picture right now is I do a lot of evaluation of climate products which are either um, regional climate models, sometimes global climate models, which global climate models are my background. That's where I feel the safest. I feel like I know the most about that because that's what I worked with in my PhD. But learning about these other tools and also something called statistical downscaling that people do, which I will have to admit that when I came into my postdoc knowing this, I had no idea that was even something people did uh, with our climate data, where they take it and they try to basically remove the bias so they can apply it to hydrologic models and it's a big area of research and I'm not going to say conflict but tension between climate scientists and uh, maybe more applied hydrologists and things like that even, yeah. um ecologists and
0: so, I, I think I like that the, oh, this is an but, interesting area when I said I like it I mean this, this could be an interesting bit to talk about because we, I, want to, I want to dig into that a little bit more, if that's okay. Um, yeah. So at Cambridge, there's this relatively new artificial intelligence for environmental risk doctoral training. They call yeah. it a Center for Doctoral Training. Yeah. And I think it might sit in a kind of similar space as what you're talking about, because mm-hmm. they are still doing basic research. They're still doing that kind of science at that level of let's investigate climate data products and let's investigate hydrology products but it definitely is with an end user in mind or a set of end users in mind Mm -hmm. that is they're trying to understand how you can take that climate information and understanding that we have now and make it into something which would be useful for um, let's say the kind of insurance community or urban Mm -hmm. planning some community like that and I've to talk about the downscaling idea a bit, why don't we do why don't we do a little exercise? I'll try to under I'll try to explain what I think downscaling is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or right. Okay. Or just that, okay. Because I'm okay. Not, I'm not pretending I'm an expert when I do this, but I like to I like to try to explain if I'm wrong, which is you know, is is a helpful exercise. Okay. So my understanding of downscaling is that you have some course resolution data let's say climate change projections of how the temperature is going to change over the next 100 years or for example how the snowpack is going to melt over the next 100 years but the grid cells in climate models are enormous right they're i mean relative to the scale of cities and the scale of you know individual towns that might be making water decisions the, the grid cells are too big so you have to somehow, if you want to make predictions at that really small scale of the scale of individual towns and individual rivers and cities and even like different parts of a state, then you've got to get small scale information in there. So, the way that I've seen this done is they will take, let's just use temperature data to be specific, and they'll have the trends in each of those big grid boxes. And then they will use the small-scale weather data, like at individual cities, to say, okay, well, here's what we think the small-scale pattern typically looks like in the historical data. We'll use that small-scale pattern to inform, we'll kind of put that on top of the um, big-scale projections from the climate model, combining large-scale, long-time-scale projections with that kind of smaller-scale information to make some attempt at, at downscaling and i think you're right i have seen that as a source of tension as well because when when you show like an older scientist some of this downscaling stuff it kind of freaks them out a little bit they're like this is this seems terribly dangerous this why would you do something like this this seems uh, riddled with inaccuracies but it we still have the issue that individual cities and states and small you know people will need to make decisions on smaller scales than what we have now from from the climate data. So it's about bridging that gap. How, how did I do? Is that all right? <laughs> that? Uh,
1: yeah, you did okay. did okay. That's um definitely what you talked about. There's actually, can I go into detail about this now? Please. Yeah. Okay. So there's actually kind of two two schools of thoughts about well there's probably more, more than two schools of thoughts, but generally there's broadly two types of downscaling. There's statistical downscaling which is what you kind of described, okay. where you have local weather information and you use statistical techniques to um, have large scale information downscale the large information to the small scale and so that can Mm. be linear regression methods that can be quantile mapping that can be neural nets uh that There's analog methods. There's a lot of methods there that are very ranging from very simple statistics to very complex statistics. Some of them, um, I think this gets its origin actually from the weather community where we have model output statistics. You have a large numerical weather forecast, and then you want to get, what is this station? What happens at this station? Hmm. If my large scale conditions are this, my large scale temperature and different things are this, what will I get here? So we already do this all the time. And there's a lot of debates about how that should work in the statistical community. And then there's also something called dynamical downscaling, which Mm. is also comes from, and in the climate world actually originates in the weather world where we take large scale models and then we run a regional model to look at Mm. um, high resolution events. So that still has all of the dynamics and physics of the atmosphere, but it's a limited area model. And Uh, We basically feed boundary conditions, feed information into that regional model from the large-scale model, and then we can simulate and get all the dynamical properties. And sometimes we can improve upon things like precipitation, which, um, and basically running a model where we don't actually have to uh, parameterize convection anymore. We can have it be explicitly represented in the model, um, convection-resolving models. So there's kind of those two schools of thought. And I'm going to admit, I came from a global climate background, and I showed up at my my postdoc, and I heard that people do these statistical methods. And I was like, well, that just breaks everything about the climate model. There's this uh, area called bias correction, where the real goal there is to just shift the distribution, shift the mean of the climate models, which are going to be biased relative to observations. And that bias can be due to a number of different things, partially that most climate projections are from freely running climate models, which are not going to sync up in time with what happened in the observed cycle. We're not going to have the same ENSO cycle. We're not going to have the exact timing right. and um, sequencing of events. They and call so how it do internal we
0: variability. That? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and how do we get that kind of balanced? Or how do we adjust things? Also, global climate models just have bias. Some are too warm. Some are too wet things like that. Um, So I still, I, I now basically one of my projects, which isn't actually my primary project, but it's one that I've been part of for a long time is comparing um, the statistical downscaling world has done a lot to compare statistical methods, which ones are better improving on these Hmm. statistical methods. How do we capture uh, the downscaling process statistically and not overfit our model and Hmm. all of this jargon that I have learned since graduating from my PhD can you and,
0: tell me more about why does it break everything? What's your um, view on why it breaks everything? Is it because it doesn't have conservation of energy and conservation of momentum and all of that? I th- or?
1: I think what happens is that people assume bias in a model and that this is, these are gross overestimations or like um, generalizations. I just mm-hmm. want to say that this is, there are very intelligent people working in this field that not everyone's just blindly working with a black box But I think people often assume that by bias correcting your data and making it smaller scale, that somehow adds value and makes the Mm. data more credible, makes it better data. Mm. But all it really does is make it, in my opinion, makes it more useful data. Mm. It makes it suitable for the use that you want to use it. But in the statistical methods, it's often very difficult to know break down then, well, why are we getting this answer? Why are we getting this change? What's driving that change? Whereas if I have the full dynamical model, I can look at, okay, I see there's a weird temperature bias here. Why do I have this temperature bias? Is it because I don't have enough soil moisture in my model and so therefore my land surface is getting too warm? Or is it because the jet stream is not in the right location? Or is it is it raining too much, not raining enough? You can kind of get at what is happening in the model and kind of decide do I think that this model is doing um, credibly, reasonably representing the climate in so much that I would trust or have confidence in the future changes? And I think-
0: In the dynamic case, in the dynamic- In the
1: dynamic case, in the dynamic case. And in the statistical case, many of these methods can be applied blindly. And I'm not saying people do this, but there's a study by uh, Douglas Moran who talked about how you can- blindly apply these statistics using large scale data from one part of the globe and apply that large scale data to statistics at the over California, when you're looking, when you have data from Europe and you can get things that look right. It mm. looks like observations, but it's actually just completely mm. wrong. These two things are completely broken from each other. And so it's mm. a, it can become a slippery slope. And I just think just because it looks more like observations, people say that makes it better. And my gut reaction to that is it's not better. It's a more useful product. Right. But is it really capturing what we want it to capture?
0: It's important so, to have the limit to understand that it has limitations, that approach yeah. has limitations. You're not,
1: yeah, not and, um, getting
0: more information.
1: Right. And I think people scare people. What I found from a lot of users, and I, and I'm not, not users in the sense that I'm talking to someone who sits in an office and looks up climate data for their specific city, but just generally people who work with this kind of climate information is that.
0: Hold on, I think pause, pause for a second, if you can hear me. Pausing, having I a little can hear bit you. of a okay, having a little bit of an issue. It's okay. I don't do a ton of editing, but on Zoom, if you know, I can take these little bits out you know, without too much trouble, you know, where it just, yeah. uh, in fact, it doesn't automatic transcription. So if I, I wonder if I say something like, Hey Dan, edit here. I wonder if I could then do a control F and then find a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry for the interruption. Go ahead. That's
1: okay. I, I feel like I, um, you know, I, I'm going to put this out there for people listening is I've transitioned into this kind of use inspired science. And so I still feel somewhat, Um, Because I didn't do my PhD specifically in this kind of work, I sometimes still feel like I'm not the expert I should be. And I do know I know a lot about this and I think about these problems a lot and I don't have the answers. Uh, But it's an area that I, I think is important to be working in. And in some ways, I think some of the disconnect I've heard comes from users of climate information needed data in a certain way wanted data at a certain scale. And climate scientists at the time were not as involved in this. Were are running their models and didn't maybe see the use in doing that. Or we're saying our models aren't ready to go to that scale. We're not ready to do that. So we didn't contribute in that way. And there was this separation in these two fields where people really needed data and it wasn't being provided um, the way they wanted it. And so they made the data work for them. And that was very useful. But now really climate modeling and climate science is getting to the point where it can be directly applicable to certain fields and can be more informative. And what do we do about that? And I think one of the biggest issues is a lot of hydrologic models are calibrated to observations. So they have empirical parameters or different adjustment factors that basically say, when I get this amount of observed precipitation, this is an oversimplification. And I want to say a hydrologist can come in here and say, this is not how it works. But, uh, you know, they take this information and they can basically calibrate it so that stream flow is what we observed. And then let's say you give it a model that never rains. And, you, and it has all these internal biases for whatever reason. And it may not be that we think the model is really that bad. It's just that it doesn't rain appropriately because of ways that precipitation is parameterized. And so you give that information to your calibrated hydrologic model, and it basically breaks the hydrologic model. You don't get stream flow, you can't get things. And then you want to look at future change on top of that when you're historic stream flow was so wrong and what does that mean and it gets to be a very complicated situ- situation and it doesn't so generalize um, well. it doesn't generalize well and so yeah. how do you work on informing this process and and that's where that's where I sit and I'm not going to say I have any of the answers for that yet I'm still very new in this field but it's what I'm yeah. And processing. And so a lot of what yeah. I do now is I work with um, actually working on the regional model side. What are regional models doing well and what are they not doing well? And I've really moved into the winter precipitation and snow hydrology side of things because that's an area where a lot of work can be done in terms of informing and studying what happens with snow.
0: So you're yeah. on the dynamical downscaling side of that division at the moment? or you're Yeah, and
1: I work with I still work with GCMs. I do love, I do feel that GCMs and RCMs are both also uh, our regional models and global climate models or general yeah. circulation models there. Yeah. They're both of these tools. And I, I think there's actually, um, there's also a lot of, I'm not going to say there's tension between the two communities in many ways. Also, um, mm. Glo- global, and regional? <laughs> global and regional modelers have mm. some tension between them, especially in the U.S. I S I don't know if it's as prominent in, Europe, but they're, you know, competition for funding and kind of understanding how different processes work, what you can get out of either one. And in a global model, if you want to look at changes in internal variability and large scale dynamics and how that happens, that has to be done on a global scale. But then to get at the information on a regional scale, you're either going to have to post-process that Through statistical downscaling, you're going to have to force a regional climate model with that, or you can move towards the uh, variable resolution global climate models is also a thing now where we have these different meshes within the global climate model where a specific region can have high resolution and it directly feeds back. And it gets really complicated.
0: This nested grid stuff, right? Yeah.
1: Wait, sorry, Um, um, you cut out there.
0: Nested grid? Does that sound? Yeah, the
1: nested grid concept. So.
0: have a finer a grid inside there. a coarser grid and an even finer grid inside that one. One bit of yeah. advice I heard about those type of models though, is that you can get these artificial waves being generated at mm-hmm. the boundaries, these numerical instabilities yeah. at the boundaries where you transition from one resolution to the other. So you have to like, put there that can can damp them out or you have to. Yeah. Sp- you know, know, put tr- some sort of sponge. Up, yeah. Spong- turn off the viscosity. Spongler. That's like,
1: yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So Ah, brings me back to grad school and building models and learning about numerics.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And all the, the pitfalls of that and all the problems. So you mentioned to the, you started to talk about the project you're doing now and in terms of you're sort of comparing, did you say you were comparing statistical and dynamic downscaling or is it more that you're, so you are. Okay. So that's part of.
1: Okay. So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. Uh, It's a hard thing. So it's, it's not. Uh, there have been a lot of statistical downscaling studies that have compared a vast array of statistical methods and showing which ones show improvement in, in representing extremes or representing the mean or representing variability and how do we make sure we're capturing different things and what can we do to get spatial consistency versus just downscaling at a single point. Been, there's a huge amount of literature in the statistics field. And then... There are dynamical downscalers who do dynamical climate change experiments. They look at ensembles the same way that GCMs look at ensembles in terms of multiple RCMs being driven by multiple GCMs. That's something called NARCAP, which is what my supervisor uh, basically started. And then there's also also, um, a global organization, Yeah, N-A-R-C-C-A-P, the North American Regional Climate Change Assessment Program. And then now there's and there's some European projects that are the same. I think Ensembles is one of those. (laughs) And now there's um, a global initiative called CORDEX, which is doing dynamical downscaling over all parts of the globe. (laughs) And so that's been going on. That's had its first iteration through CNIP 5, and now it's going on to its second iteration with CNIP 6. I like to use a lot of jargon.
0: Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to keep your head around uh, all ex- these different intercomparison projects, right? Like the, yeah, the MIPs, the oh, Model yeah. Intercomparison Projects. The There's so many yeah. of them. Maybe we should well, have the MIP MIP Model Intercomparison Project MIP-MIP? MIP MIP MIP. <laughs>
1: yeah, and so um, so so then people have compared a lot of dynamical downscaling models and how those represent the climate. But what really hasn't been done is really um what my supervisor likes to call a credibility assessment of can we say because a lot of users want to know okay but which one which model should i use Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. method should i use tell me which one is the right one and the answer to that is probably is there isn't a right one there are some that are better for certain purposes there are some that are better for one end user and not another one region and not another one variable right. and not another. And how do you, and how do you get at this? And, you know, in some ways it sounds, I'm making it, it sounds really complicated. And sometimes you think, Oh, that should be really easy. I'll just look at the data and figure it out. And this is where I realized that it's, it hasn't been done before and there's so fundamentally different methods that comparing them a lot of times what we can do is just compare we can just say well this method shows this level and this method shows this level of change Mm -hmm. and this you know this bias and the bias is there for different reasons and the change is there for different reasons and i'm not sure which one is more credible than the other and which one you should trust more than the other and it's a really um
0: because it's, it's hard to know. It's almost it's, an
1: existential problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it could be hard to know if a model is getting the right reason for the wrong answer, you know, that's yeah, possible. The right
1: answer for the wrong reason, or, you know, we use a lot of these terminology, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. <laughs> we get different things. And so I'm, I'm realizing, well, I have a lot of knowledge about the different different methods and the different yeah. data, how you really compare them at a deep level, a meaningful level. It's been a challenge mm. and it's one of the things that I actually have a meeting this afternoon to talk about where this project sits and it is stressful because it seems so important to me and I feel mm. like there people really want an answer for this and and I really like to please people. So I want to come up with an answer for this. And I, there isn't one, but I think just good to have that perspective of coming back and just, this is where it is a pure science question. This is a you know curiosity-driven question of can we even do this? Can we mm-hmm. even compare these methods in a meaningful way that yeah. might have meaning for users and also kind of assesses their scientific credibility?
0: Yeah, so for climate models, I mean, you can compare them based on how well they've performed in the past you can compare them against yeah. historical data and but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have all the right sensitivities and will behave like they should according to the actual laws of the physics of the earth you know on into the next several right. decades and i guess they all obey you know physical laws that's not the problem the problem is sometimes the parameterization right the things that they don't resolve uh-huh. The, the fluxes that we don't really know about that we only have kind of yeah. loose measurements of, you know, the fluxes yeah. between the atmosphere and ocean, the,
1: the atmosphere the, the, and the, the land. atmosphere <laughs> and the land, Yeah,
0: absolutely. So how, how do you start? I mean, I guess the historical comparison is part of it, but uh, I, yeah. What, what do you, what do, think do you benchmark it against?
1: I mean, we do, rely again on the historical evaluation but the statistical methods are almost always going to perform better when Mm. they don't you start to question it because they are you typically train them to your observations and you can do different statistical things to make sure you leave half the sample out and you look at you don't include the data that you're trying to look at in your model development there's a lot of different methods in which you can do that but they're almost always going to perform better if you just look at the mean climate and what you get in terms of mean precipitation, mean temperature. And I actually have a lot more confidence in downscaling temperature because that really is controlled in large part by large-scale flow. There is going to be some variability that's hard, but you know, over the mid-latitudes, 500 millibar geopotential height is a great predictor for surface temperature. When it comes to precipitation, that gets to be a lot more complicated. And um, you know, our GCMs and our RCMs tend to drizzle and not have the intense precipitation, and so you need to adjust or people do adjust the distribution of precipitation to match that and try to get things to look better, but weird things happen. Like if, if you have a hurricane in your sample in one case, and that's how extreme it gets, but let's say you never had a hurricane in your time series, and but hurricanes can't happen there. And then you apply climate change information to that that has hurricanes and your observations never saw hurricanes, you can get some crazy results. And so really understanding why you're getting the answer you're getting when you put things through a statistical method is hard and i am not a i'm not a trained statistician i am basically a physicist when i think about it who has some background in computation and i learned a lot about the physics of the atmosphere and i took a statistics class that allowed me to look at you know the large-scale variability in the atmosphere and where there's power in different signals and then it comes down to you know this kind of more um basic statistics and i'm just like oh i have to read about it i read i'm gonna show you a picture i read books called statistical downscaling and bias correction (laughs) this is my free reading (laughs)
0: oh yeah i think i've heard of that that
1: your readers will see this but i showed you my my statistical downscaling book but um, i can
0: i can relate to that i feel like i've gone through a similar process of my training was very much more focused on here's the equation, here's the momentum equation, and here's the heat equation, and here's how the numerical algorithm works. And the, my recent little push into machine learning has made me confront a lot of just statistical techniques uh, and and statistical kind of concepts of like, what's a posterior probability anyway? You know, (laughs) questions like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: So, and I, um, I've worked with mostly summer interns bringing in statistics and math made students to work with me on some um, machine learning. Sorry, just totally spaced on the the language there for some projects for doing statistical downscaling basically in different ways. And I'm so grateful that they know a lot of that stuff because I...
0: Their training has been more like along those lines, along... Here's the basic statistical concept. So
1: here's the basic equations. This is why these waves exist in the atmosphere. This is how we build. This is what numerical instability is in a GCM. This is how we choose what our grid is going to be. This is why we have staggered grids. Mm -hmm. This is how we choose our time step in our model. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I saw an (laughs) XKCD I saw an XKCD comic. If people don't know what that is, it's a very good.
0: Yes. Uh, I think this audience probably does know XKCD. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: I saw one recently that someone else posted, which was basically about, I wish I could remember, but it was like, you know, a curve about how smart and hard and how much math you do and how complex everything is. And it's like up until your PhD, when you have like this peak physical knowledge of the system and what you're doing and then it crashes because basically in the end you're it says at the end it's like spreadsheets yeah. <laughs> it's like actually yeah it just becomes like data analysis of but in like python or other languages
0: yeah uh, that's right so yeah. your your level of mathematics get more gets more and more sophisticated throughout your kind of undergrad and then grad school yeah. years and then you might just be managing a project budget and then you just need excel and that's all <laughs> that's what you need yeah or you're
1: just you already have the code written up to do these complex mathematical problems. And you, if you had to go back and rewrite it today, it would be a really big struggle, but thankfully you wrote it when you were in your PhD. (laughs) And so (laughs) you know that
0: stuff. Yeah. You mentioned your students. I have my student Harry Holt to thank for teaching me Python. He basically is like, he he gave me a really nice shortcut into Python, (laughs) which has helped me so much. Um, So I think that's important for students to remember is like, because I think it's too easy to come in as a student and maybe feel like, oh gosh, I have to catch up. I'm I'm not going to be useful. Um, you actually could really be useful, especially if your perspective and your pathway is different from the person you're working with. Then, yeah, you yeah. actually you you can add a lot of value just by virtue of having a different kind of pathway and a yeah. different set of concepts in your head, you know, better familiarity yeah. with something specific like Python. So yeah, it's, if you're a yeah. student, it's good. Remember your value. You are valuable.
1: <laughs> oh, students are extremely valuable. And I'm, I actually sit in the, it's kind of, a. I sit in the computational sciences division at NCAR. There's, I'm also in the research application lab. I have a joint appointment at the moment, but I've been in the, what we call Sizzle, the computer part of NCAR for a long time. And so a lot of people there work on the supercomputer. They work on network security. They do a lot of really interesting work. They help improve the, efficiency of our models and how to, they design, how we're going to do computing in the future. And then we are a big data group. We have been generating and working with big data for a long time. And so we have this collaboration with kind of like informing some of the more computational people about big data, what user needs are, different things. Uh, But because of that, I've had the opportunity, they really do a summer internship, which is really geared towards computer science and mathematics and statistics students. And Mm. so I've had this opportunity for them to come in and it's been so great for me because it really allows me to learn without having to read all the basic books. I can learn (laughs) kind of what I need because a lot of times when you're going to learn a new language or you're going to learn a new method, you don't don't want to learn the most basic method. You don't want to learn like Y equals MX plus B. You want to learn complex machine learning algorithms and it takes a while.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, you don't want to design a whole new machine learning algorithm. You just want to be, you, yeah. know, you want to be able to use it. Yeah. And, and you want to have seems... someone
1: who can come in and say, this is how machine learning looks for image processing. Let's come in and yeah. figure out what we can do with data and what kind of network we need to build. And, you know, and I can, i'm learning this is something i'm learning like why i think it is okay to be a mentor and i never thought of it before is i can still inform those projects even though i don't necessarily understand the back end i also know like who to help reach out to and that's where like being a mentor is really important because you have this much bigger network than a lot of the people you're working with and you can help bring those people into their life and kind of say okay we're stuck on this problem let's reach out to this expert in machine learning in our field and see how they've dealt with this problem before.
0: Yeah and with your experience that's right you can also look a little bit down the road and say okay but when we go to turn this into a paper or when we go to present this or when we go to share this with somebody we'll need to have x y and z done so let's go yeah. ahead and start working on those now so that yeah. when we get there we'll be ready for it and you can offer yeah. just perspective on that level. So yeah, that's one an- thing
1: that I think CSU maybe, I don't know if it was my advisor at Colorado State University in my PhD program, or it was just the program itself. But that is one thing where I can get stuck in my own research is anticipation of what needs to go into a paper for it to go through peer review
0: Hmm. and
1: wanting to make sure I leave no stone unturned which sounds great in theory, but can also lead you down. I think my friend, even today, we talk about seeing the forest for the trees, but how easy it is to get lost in your own forest. Mm. She totally said this to me today, that it's really easy to kind of, when you're on your own, just kind of second guess. It's like, well, why did I choose this method? Why did I choose this algorithm? Why did I choose this model? I'm going to have to be able to justify this to every single person, whoever reads this paper. And I think that's one thing we're having a perspective to helps not let other people get stuck in that same downward spiral (laughs) yeah yeah
0: one one phrase I heard that's helpful for me for some reason is um just let the reviewers do their job which I think is interesting (laughs) just like well just do you know put it together put the science story together and explain what you need to explain and then let the reviewers do their job and tell and let them tell you like and you know that's a normal part of the process and you know revising papers and revising your work and iterating on projects is totally normal and you should totally expect it yeah. so you don't have to have 100% of the story you know at your first iteration you know um mm-hmm. it can be more of a more of a relaxed thing but so what what sort of things do you do if you to zoom out a little bit and what are the things that help you zoom out and see the forest instead of getting stuck I in think- the trees
1: I honestly think talking to other people, I am um very much a I have to talk through things for me to really even tell the story. I need to talk to another person about what the story is. So I think the things that help me is having a network of friends. They are friends, mm-hmm. you know, friends who are science, you know science friends. They're well versed enough in what I do that they can have an intelligent conversation with me, but they may not actually do exactly what I do. And just sitting down and talking through, this is the story I'm trying to tell. And then Mm. sometimes for me, just talking out loud makes me realize like, why am I spending days and days on this weird analysis when I'm trying to tell this story? Um, Mm. Hearing from other people that they also agree that choosing why can be a little bit ambiguous. And at some point you just have to make a choice and go with it and -hmm. justify that choice and that, if a reviewer really has a problem with it, that's where you can have this discussion. And the reviewer may actually have a better suggestion that you never thought of. In an ideal world, that's what would happen in the review process. I think one of the things that I'm learning to do now is really revisit my outline a lot in terms of just like, what is the what am I trying to tell people right now? Mm. What What is my main objective? for this. And also trying to narrow down that objective. I think I spent a lot of time thinking I'm going to write a paper that has all the answers. <laughs> I mean, that's just my own thought process. And I realize like, that's not going to, I mean, there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> Saying that out loud, you realize that's not it, but you have this emotional like connection to your work. You become really passionate and involved in what you're doing. And you think I'm just going to have all the answers for this and taking a step
0: back. Nobody's gonna have any questions at the end of this. They're just gonna be blown away, and they're just gonna sit back in their life. chair and go, "Yeah." Oh.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Rachel, for Thank telling you. us the world, explaining what happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you cracked it open, yeah. So, so talking yeah. to other people—that's
1: what works for me a lot. And then revisiting my own outline, and um, I'm learning more and more that everyone has a like. So, so I I tell this. I probably shouldn't put this out there in the world, but. Mm. Uh, so I struggle with the academic writing part of my job and that is, that is my job. No, you know, people told me in grad school, like publish or perish. I don't, it's not publish or perish. It really, to me is that is actually my job is Mm -hmm. to get my research out into the world to be studied by other people to help inform other people from moving forward, to advance science or to advance methodology or to just even provide and then part of it is even to just provide information for program managers to keep supporting the type of research that we know is important and um if you'd asked me as a one reason i went into science and i went into math and i went into these things was because those classes didn't require me to write essays all that often it was like, I had to write like one paper a year in my science classes. And I, I like that because I find the writing process to be very tumultuous. I find I can speak really well about things generally, but when I go to put the words on paper, they become harder. I have this big block about writing. And um, so I sometimes wonder if this is the right field for me, but I've been learning that writing is a really different process for everybody.
0: Yes. I'm trying and you're, to, you're not alone. You're yeah. Alone I know alone. I'm not
1: alone. That's why I'm sharing it yeah. out here too. It's because. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, and I, you know, the some of the really I've learned from people like the really prolific people who write a lot, also struggle with writing. Mm-hmm. I also struggle with. Of guests.
0: Uh, yeah, Sorry. One of The
1: other things I struggle. Oh,
0: okay. Oh yeah, I was just saying. Something. There's been there's been loads of guests on the show because that's one of the things I often ask about is writing, and yeah, yeah. lots of them have said no. I, I really sometimes writing is a big struggle for me. I don't really like writing at all. There's loads of successful scientists who that part of the process is difficult for them and not, not natural. Yeah. So you're not the only one with a tumultuous relationship with it for sure.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, You know, growing up, I was told by all my English teachers that I was a terrible writer because I don't know how to write about literature to save my life. It's just not a thing I write about, but it turns out I can write a logical argument. I learned that in philosophy classes and in science classes. And so I try to have confidence that one of the things that I am good at is telling the story. And I'm very concerned with what the storyline is in my papers, which also makes it harder because sometimes I feel like if I don't have a story, I don't know what to write about. Mm. Um, but that is, that is one area that I try to give, remind myself of like, by the time this goes to, goes to peer review, there will be a story. Yes. And you will be turning that story. And there may be, people may disagree with that story. That, that is a really hard thing to hear. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, but that's, that's one of the things that I realize is really important to me. If I don't know why you're writing this paper and what the point is, I'm probably not going to be that interested mm. in your work.
0: And it's an iterative process finding that story. Yeah. You know, you look at plots, yeah. you look at crap, you get some ideas and it's not going to come right away necessarily. You know, it takes, takes Mm-mm. time and it takes iteration. And yeah, I mean, sometimes the story you end up with is very different from the project you were working on yes. at, at all. You know, you can.
1: Yeah. And also sometimes. You have all your figures and you think you know what the story is and you didn't start writing because you have anxiety about writing and then you start writing and you realize, oh, I need to make all these other figures because I'm not actually showing what I thought I was showing. Or, you know, it really gets you to think deeper about the problem when you write it down.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Love the different writing styles. Some people you know it kind of comes in these bursts where they sort of everything sort of coagulates at once and then they can just get it get it out and get it out on the paper but yeah i'm not i'm not like that i'm not like that at all
1: i i think that one of the things for me is when i start writing it becomes my husband already comments on this that i'm kind of an absent-minded professor i can be in my head i jump all over the place in terms of like <laughs> thoughts i mean just personal thoughts but work thoughts and when i start writing My brain really is in this writing space and I go to sleep thinking about writing and I wake up sleeping about writing and I'm just in this writing and I've, I've been trying to experiment with ways to not have it be something that consumes my life. And I do think writing more frequently really helps with that. Spending time. I'd like to say every day, but it doesn't happen every day, but writing something uh, really helps.
0: I've got a science type question for you or at least from where you're sitting i was kind of wondering from your vantage point in the in the field really broadly speaking do you think that there are going to be some pretty big changes over the next few uh, you know five ten years are there any big breakthroughs or is it more of a process of filling in some of the details and filling? like is it a smaller People, I'm trying to avoid using the word incremental, but that's the word people use <laughs> is to talk about, yeah. you know, are we likely to see any big shifts or are we more likely to just continue kind of adding our bits of knowledge and filling in the puzzle? Because you know, the puzzle, we see the big picture of the, of the climate puzzle, but we might still be missing some individual, we are still missing some individual pieces here and there. And some pe- puzzle yeah. pieces might be jammed into the wrong slot or something like that. <laughs> but yes, uh, I think... Yes.
1: I guess, and it's just my personal perspective, I think there could be some, I think there definitely could be some big changes. But I don't know with what I work on and with who I'm working with, I see more of an incremental change and shift. And I see shifts in what is valued by funding agencies and what is valued by scientists and by users of science. And so I think that could change a lot um, in terms of what's driven. I hate to say this, but like driven a little bit more politically into where the money is going, which can drive science, but I'm I'm positive there are avenues in our field where there will be some big paradigm shifts that happen or big things that happen. I don't see that. I don't know if those things happen as intentionally. Maybe they do. Maybe that happens intentionally for people, but I feel like it's those slow increments that lead to this really big shift. And Mm so it's hard for me to predict in that. And I may just be a little bit too early to mid in my career about seeing the big picture for the small piece that I'm playing. Um, I also wonder sometimes I'm a soft money scientist. And so I do a lot of projects. And in some ways, I think that means it's harder for me to think deeply about an individual project. And sometimes that deep work is really where the big shifts happen.
0: And so... Like longer term funding or, you know, like a, a funding you're, you're... and just
1: the ability to kind of keep tackling the same issue over and over again. Um, one of my colleagues is developing this kind of hybrid, hybrid isn't the right word, but this kind of in between, there's some people into doing hybrid statistical dynamical downscaling, hmm. where uh, I mean, there's, a, there's multiple approaches on how you look at this problem, but they're very interesting in terms of potentially what might be able to combine the good and the bad from both sides and maybe get something that is a little bit more useful, that isn't just a statistical manipulation of data, but that's part of it. I think that could be a really interesting area for the kind of connection between users and um, scientists. So that's a big area. It already exists. And this is another thing that was, it already exists a little bit. It's just that uh, that may become more popular. I could see that happening in the future.
0: So Libby Barnes talks about um, physics-driven machine learning or, you know, uh, yeah. machine learning with, so that sort of sounds like the axis that we might be talking about. Is yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, this guy, Ethan Gutman at NCAR, he developed, it's like an intermediate model. It has ICAR is the name. I don't know the, I don't know the names of any, uh, what any acronym stands for anyway. Great. but um no, this, this one really has basically like a dynamical model air moves around it uh, but it doesn't have it's not a complete fully coupled model it's still driven by large-scale predictors. and it works really well in mountain regions where you're going to mm-hmm. have large-scale orographic forcing and that really can improve precipitation patterns and snow and so it's good for those things things but it's not going to be as good over the planes, because of what the driving mechanism is in that model. But there could be something within machine learning, and more physics based machine learning in that area that would add that I think that that's cool. I don't know, I'm actually funded under a similar um, call uh, from Lib- from Libby, who is doing machine learning in that. And so it'll be exciting to see what she comes up with. And that may be a really big area. I guess I was kind of leaning on that same thing. She's thinking bigger picture, uh, a little bit more. But I think that combining kind of physics with the more robust faster to compute statistics
0: yeah so we talked about with, with I, Libby oh, sorry yeah
1: and I don't know where this sorry I don't know where this sits right now because it brings me back to more of my PhD and things I like hear at NCAR but kind of this unified modeling concept and I'm thinking of more of the space we talked a little bit about the variable resolution models before where you have these nested meshes and being able to have um, basically like, um Spatial resolution aware parameterizations hmm. that can kind of change that already exists a little bit in all of these models where it's like when when the grid spacing is um, you know greater than twelve kilometers we're going to have these things implemented but when we were less than twelve kilometers then we're going to turn off this part of the parameterization and only allow this I think those spatially aware types of parameterizations are going to become bigger and bigger and have a lot of improvements and they're already there in existence but maybe this is where machine learning based physics will come in and help with some of this, like, spatially aware processes.
0: Hmm. So, but are these big
1: about, paradigm shifts, I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like that for our field, some of these shifts, these big shifts might come in the domain of what kind of tools are we using? Because mm-hmm. we're not going to suddenly have a super high resolution climate model that, you know, resolves convection everywhere and resolves you know, all the different instabilities yeah. and mixing in the ocean that we have. So the, the big shifts might not come as much from fundamentally changing our whole understanding of the whole climate mm-hmm. system, but it might come from, okay, we've developed a really much better tool that helps us shrink error bars and helps us make more robust projections and hopefully helps us make better regional projections. Cause that's, that's sort of the next, that's kind of where we need to go is like better regional projections so that kind of local scale governments can, and uh, Mm -hmm. other stakeholders as people like to say, can make those, those kind of decisions. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one area that's also important is um, I just had this idea that I I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, you might need to fact check this for me. But uh, <laughs> if you do mm. any fact checking. But um, <laughs> I also think cloud cloud computing. So we've been kind of on the forefront, I think our field of big data for a long time. We have created these huge climate simulations. We were using supercomputers very early on. Yeah. In, and, in um, CAR specifically. In specifically. Yeah. But other other modeling agencies have really been in the forefront of these things. And now we're looking at What can we do with cloud computing? How can we change computing? And basically, more efficient computing and also more efficient data storage, being able to, like, how do we process the terabytes and terabytes and petabytes of data that we're generating now? It's And I mean, one area too is the tools that we use to process data are not keeping up, in my opinion, with how much data we can produce. And so I do think that is going to be advances. But I think advances in computing has always been something that, has been something that has pushed atmospheric science and earth science oceanography forward in many ways. And so are we hitting a limit? Are we just looking at new things? But I'm a little nervous because I'm not exactly a technophobe, but I definitely didn't get into this field to be a computer scientist or a software engineer. And so as I'm expected to learn these new tools and learn these new things that are really not my... my forte I get I'll get a little anxious about it I honestly mm-hmm. think if mm-hmm. someone told me my entire job was going to be writing computer code when I was first going into this field I never mm-hmm. I, I would have run the other direction because I was so be,
0: yeah you're gonna be a software programmer and a writer <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would have been like I don't like computers and or writing so um, <laughs> I'm just gonna go back to my original dream when I was like 10 of being an accountant because yeah. i liked like math. And apparently that's the only thing I knew that people did with math was being an accountant.
0: That was my dad's <laughs> dream. That was my dad's thought in high school In high school. He thought he was going to be an accountant. Yeah.
1: What did uh, your dad do?
0: So he ended up being an electrical engineer. And oh. so his high school guidance counselor told him, um, that hey, you're really good at math. You should go to Georgia Tech, and, and so he did, and uh, he studied electrical engineering, and then ended up going that way. But I, I'll have to ask him. I wonder if it was a similar like he felt like he was good at math, and he was he knew that like oh yeah, you you can be an accountant. So yeah,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I got that idea. I think there's actually like a yearbook I have from when I was in third or fourth grade where they have this like picture of you, and they want you to list like your favorite whatever and it's like career goal and I think mine was accountant slash math teacher mm. so and actually that must have been more like fifth or sixth grade because I struggled with school until about fifth or sixth grade so um oh, yeah but I think was my that in, math teacher in fi-
0: was yeah. it in, in I, California
1: yeah in California I like refused to learn to read until I was older and I had to go to remedial reading and I yeah, yeah. so it hard. was like
0: yeah that was uh I had a tough time with school when I was younger too. I know that uh, it didn't necessarily, it and it wasn't so much the academic stuff as just the social part of it and the pressure and the emotional part of it for me. And I guess, I guess that's, I mean, not sure. A lot of kids go through that. So you're were, you're were like refusing to read. You said you're like, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this.
1: I mean, the story, I don't remember all the details, but when I was in second grade, my parents moved from one school district to another. Um, we moved from one part of California to another. And I think the original school district that I was in wasn't very good. It wasn't mm. the best school district. And so okay. I had been, I kind of was falling behind. I i fell behind and maybe I was a little bit ahead naturally from my my class. And then I didn't learn much that year, let's say. I don't know a lot about how kids learn, but yeah. um Then I moved to a school district that had really high expectations and higher standards and was much stronger. And my mom tells the story that I came back from my first day of first grade and I came in the door and I closed the door behind me and I said, I'm stupid and I'm not going back. And basically for some reason, it was like, I didn't test well. I don't remember that I didn't test well in reading or spelling or something. And I just felt really defeated. And so I do remember it was a big challenge for my mom and I to like, she helped me learn to read. And the first book I read was Anne of Green Gables with her. Uh And I remember going to remedial, not remedial, I don't even know what you call it, but I had to go to special reading classes during the day and get special help. And I was so embarrassed by this fact, but then by sixth grade, I had adjusted a lot more and I actually was going and helping the kids who couldn't read. That was like what I was one of those people who got to go help younger kids with reading. Um, but I, I also was really young for my grade. Uh so I think now I wouldn't even be allowed, like I wouldn't have been allowed to start school when I did, but at the time, because my birthday is in November. It's so a, a lot difference. of time ta- yeah, yeah, and I basically as teachers said like developmentally I was just like I was really smart, but I was younger, and I guess that plays a role into things. But um I think it also at some point I've definitely had a few instances in my education where I've turned People saying, "Oh, you can't do that. You're not smart enough, or you didn't take the right classes." Into, "Well, I'll show you." And I, my stubbornness came out, and that happened in high school, where my high school was um, had an international baccalaureate program, which you kind of had to agree to do pretty early on because you had these extra classes you had to take or a specific line of classes. And I was told because in I did I actually did really poorly in math in junior high, and that's where the social aspect got in trouble because I think I was more interested in like talking to my friends than doing math. Mm, (laughs) And so I wasn't in honors anymore. And I wasn't in honor science. And my mom had to fight really hard to get me back into honors. And I had to work and do extra classes to get back up there. But I feel like I just turned into like, well, I'm going to show them that I am smart enough to do this. That
0: worked out. That strategy has stuck with you. you I know. I know.
1: I've always wanted to go back to my junior high math teacher and say, (laughs) you don't know that I was, you just, you were a bad teacher. I knew how to do math. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it was, she was a great teacher for a lot of people. She just, her style and my style, like just didn't work. I've also always Mm. been a very verbal student. And I think that can be hard to manage for Mm classroom
0: <laughs> oh for like a big group of 30 people and like yeah you, and I'm like
1: always talking and I process things by talking out loud that can be pretty distracting to the rest of the
0: class <laughs> so like, wait I have more questions I need to I need to <laughs> I need to work through yeah. this yeah that's yeah. right I'm glad that works for you um I don't I don't think I respond to that kind of pressure in the same way you know it, I think I, I'm much more likely to just disengage with the whole thing um I remember some I uh, think- so I was just gonna say, like, I remember some gym teachers who tried to use that strategy of the like, you know, maybe if I mildly put them down, they'll want to prove me wrong, and and uh, I would just go the other way and just like, I'm out, I'm not I'm not doing it. Oh,
1: for sports, I definitely, I don't know, it it, it isn't everything. There, de- right, I'm not, right. I'm not always gonna fight it. I definitely have times where I feel like, oh, I'm not good enough for this thing. There's definitely a psychology there, and I'm um a pretty naturally anxious person. So Mm -hmm. that anxiety fueled me for a long time. And then that anxiety became like crippling at some point where, you know, in grad school, which I don't know if this is a good transition to talk about maybe how we met.
0: We can, we can (laughs) totally do that. I was, I was kind of curious. I was, I was, I was going to ask a little bit more about you're growing up though, if you don't mind, just slightly. Yeah, that's
1: fine. It. That's fine. Yeah. Can you yeah. remind
0: me, you probably told me this at one point, what are, what are you, what, what did your folks do? And like you were near Los Angeles, right? That was.
1: Yeah. I grew up just North of Los Angeles um, yeah. in Ventura County. And um, so my mom worked for social security. She, I don't know if she'd like me telling the world this, but she was a federal basically administrator and um, she was a manager. I think she did great at her job. It was hard. Work, mm. Definitely, and then my dad uh, was a wildlife biologist. He has a master's degree in ornithology, and oh. he um, starts studying birds.
0: Yeah. yeah, and
1: then he ended up working for a couple different, a few different uh, federal agencies. So they're both federal employees, and um, he basically studied different things related to. Um, how they impacted birds and wildlife. And then at some point he worked for Fish and Wildlife Services, which does a lot of endangered species listings. So he dealt with a lot of that. Mm. Um, So I would say my, a lot of my family and family friends were scientists or science focused in many ways, very outdoorsy, not extreme outdoors people where you come to Colorado and people are hiking every 14 or, but just spending time outside camping
0: kind of what they do um yeah yeah so the uh, and it sounds like so did your dad have a lot of field trips or did you have to go out or is it mostly kind of a like our job where it sounds like you might be going out a lot but really you're sitting at a desk for the most part and you're doing an analysis you know
1: I think he had both like I think before I was born and maybe when I was young, my dad definitely did more field-based research. There's all these pictures of him. They had these crazy antennas they would wear to find the banded birds that they had like radio transmitters put on. And I know my dad did some studies where he had to look at what happened to birds, um, in uh, windmill, like wind farms.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a thing even,
1: yeah, the wind turbines. And, um, I remember going out with my dad and he, he actually, um, my dad's closest two high school friends. One is also an ornithologist, and then the other one is a wildlife photographer. So I know hmm. going out with them, kind of doing things. Um, I hated it. I hated going bird watching with my dad with a passion. <laughs> um, now I think it's really cool, but as a kid, I just hated it. But I remember all the sitting around. Was sitting around and then my dad would make all these weird noises trying to get the birds out of the bushes <laughs> and i just was like and it's like we would go for a hike and instead of hiking it would take us like an hour to, or like hours to walk a mile because we're just like looking oh, yeah. um but you I know i it did yeah um frustrating so, for a kid
0: yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah but i think science was always really valued in my family um Logical arguments, thinking through why things are the way they are. We're definitely not as much. I mean, my parents now go to art museums and got much more of that, but it's kind of like science. And we would go to national parks a lot and we would go to science museums. And my mm-hmm. aunt, who's actually my mom's best friend, or my family's best, like, really close friend, she was a geologist and a high school teacher and she would teach at the Natural Science Museum in Los Angeles. So every summer I went there and I took. I took um, science classes like ecology nice. and geology and botany. And so that's kind of oh, what I was cool. exposed to. I wouldn't say I always knew I wanted to be a scientist though. Mm-hmm. I really ended up really liking math in high school. Um, I actually hated physics the most. Mm. in high oh, school, yeah. so <laughs> oh, wow. I never thought I would basically get a degree in physics. I don't know. Uh-huh. just didn't. <laughs> I will say like experimental science was never my favorite thing. I always measured things wrong or was really worried I did things wrong and so yeah. Computational yeah. science is easier to recreate. You can just like mm. run it again. Oh, okay, let me fix that problem. Oh, let yeah. me fix all of those bugs.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I I understand that feeling. I felt that way about like, you mean I ruined the experiment because I forgot to bend this thing slightly. Yeah. <laughs> like I bent this thing in slightly like, the wrong way and now we can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah.
1: Or, or like, oh, I didn't I put one grain extra of this chemical in my in my water and now it blew up. Oh no. Start what all over I again.
0: What chem? what chemistry lab are you doing? <laughs> with one grain like, nothing so, blew,
1: nothing, uh, nothing blew up, but I did feel like I did learn quickly on that I shouldn't be in a measurement based <laughs> like where I was having to physically measure things because yeah. I just was so bad at it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up at, at UCLA, yeah?
1: yeah um Pretty yeah i applied parents. to my parents yeah my parents basically were like at the time they said you know financially we i needed to stay in state and i applied to the uc system and i basically had a high enough gpa and i don't know if this still exists or what the program was called but i was basically guaranteed to be able to get into a uc school the, not a specific one but i guarantee hmm. but then i got into a few which i know ucla is considered one of the most like applied to schools. So it's hard to get into in that way, I think, Hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, I ended up there and, um, I thought I wanted to be a math econ major for no reason other than I didn't know what to major in. And I liked math Hmm. and, uh, I took my first econ class and was like, no, this isn't going to work out for me.
0: I don't have any other words for economy. Have you, did you notice that? There's no synonym for economy. They just keep saying economy over and over again. There needs to be more synonyms.
1: Yeah, I I've spent a lot of time writing papers trying to find synonyms for the words I use, which is, um, yeah. How do I say, on the other hand, in a different way? How do I say, although, in a different way?
0: So what did you end up studying? Yeah.
1: Okay, so... Um, I got my degree in atmospheric and oceanic sciences at right. UCLA and I stumbled into it because I had taken math, I had taken a like C++ class, a programming class, because I had a friend kind of guide me and she was a math major and she said, oh, you're going to need to take a programming class. And um, I had actually like kind of um, tested out of a lot of the prereqs at UCLA at the time because I had done international baccalaureate in AP classes. And so I took my first econ class, my first or second semester. I can't, I think a second, second, second quarter, we're on the quarter system. And I took that class and was like, okay, this major is not for me. I don't know what's going on in this class. And everyone seems to think they know what's happening. And for some reason, this class is bafflingly confusing for me. Mm -hmm. It just, I think it involved people more than I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And I started looking through the, um, I got a physical course catalog, like an actual book, which I doubt they give to students anymore. And I started looking through the different majors, seeing like what the graduation requirements were. (laughs) And I had a really big interest in history at the time. Um, I still do. I think history is really fascinating. And I was thinking about doing urban planning and just all these different kind of ideas came across. of What was I interested in? And in atmospheric science, um, I got to the A's. I got to atmospheric science. That's how far I got into the book, uh, starting from whatever (laughs) the first, I don't even know what the first one was in this book. And there was a class called um, Climate Change and Public Policy. Hmm. And it was taught by Dr. Alex Hall, who still works at UCLA. And I think it was the, he was one of his, when he first started there, and it was one of his first, like the first um, time he taught this class, mm. and I think there were like twelve of us in the class. And I, I don't know if I mean I'd grown up in an era where I'd learned, I went through an El a big El Nino. The 97, 98 El Nino happened when I was in high school, and so that was talked a lot about. So I knew about El Nino. I knew about how that influenced Southern California climate. Climate change was definitely in the news, but it wasn't. I don't think it was definitely not what it is today. Um, right. And I think the Second, one of the IPCC reports had maybe just come out. I can't remember. Okay, whatever one came out in 2001, the 2001 mm-hmm. IPCC report. So that's the third IPCC report, I think, had just come out. And so we, we read parts of the IPCC report, and he talked about the importance of weather and climate for... I don't really remember much of the po- public policy part of it, but I do remember thinking that I was going to get a science degree, a hardcore science degree. And then I was going to translate science to people because Hmm. lay people don't understand climate models and I'm going to learn the physics of climate. This is like, I remember having this very altruistic thing. And I think I used to tell my mom, I was going to try to save the world, which I have realized is a smaller process than one might actually realize. (laughs) And a lot of the TA that TA in the class had been in the Peace Corps and she was really fascinating and did all this interesting work. And, um, (laughs) UCLA was a huge school and I took all these, I felt really, I don't think I realized it at the time because I'm very social, but I felt really lost. I would take classes with 300 people. My professor didn't know me. Mm. I felt like I just didn't have a connection. And the atmospheric science program at UCLA for undergrad was very small. My graduating class was like of 12. And at the time that was the biggest graduating class they'd had in a long time. And I felt like I really, yeah. And I just, um, I really felt, Really passionate about the classes I got to take. I was really excited about learning about the climate system. And I'm not a weather weenie. I took weather classes, but that's really not what got me into this field. I grew up in Southern California. We don't even have weather practically there. So, <laughs> um, yeah,
0: not much yeah, that's kind of what
1: happened. And I just, um, am I still there? Are things still? You okay. are.
0: Yeah. Okay. Still recording.
1: I think I just turned the volume up. Sorry. Edit uh, that
0: okay. out. <laughs> sure edit hey (laughs) future self look at this Um, so then you can like leave a little pause then you can go and
1: (laughs) yeah so that's kind of how i got into it and i still took a couple i had a minor in geography but with a climate focus um and I was still thinking about being a math major until I went to take real analysis. And honestly, peer, the program I was in at UCLA was a pure math department. It just didn't resonate with me. So hmm. it was exciting when I got to grad school and learned like, oh, this is what eigenvalues are used for in a useful, like I had, no, yes. I took a whole linear algebra class and had no idea why anyone did anything <laughs> with linear algebra. And then I'm sure that my teachers tried to teach me that. It just didn't come across.
0: Not necessarily. They may not, not necessarily, have, yeah. like in a, in and a math I learned all class. like I was just like going to say like,
1: yeah,
0: I had a, yeah. I had a math class where, you know, like they taught us, well, here's, here's how you take the curl of a vector field. And I remember yeah. somebody asked like, well, what is Why would you how ever do how that? you interpret that? And the professor had zero idea. They just know like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. <gasps> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, sometimes I think about maybe if I had found applied math, I would have stuck with math a little differently because I did like math, but proofs, I, I, I've also heard some universities have this like transition course from like learning how to do math as a tool for solving problems and then going into like the pure math more um, side of things. And UCLA definitely if they had it, no one told me about it. And I just it was like I did like, um, you know, I did calculus and I did multivariate calculus. And then suddenly I went to the next step was linear algebra. And it was basically just proofs proving that linear algebra. I don't even know how to talk about proofs because I was so and I still did well in math, which is why I got into grad school, but it was a lot of just, I'm not going to say memorization, but it was short term, short lived. Like I know how to solve these problems. I know how to go on paper and solve the problem. And I get the right answer, but not really having any idea, like, why would I do this
0: in the right. world? The big picture. So the zoomed out perspective. Yeah.
1: And then I took PDEs and I remember they'd be like, imagine you have an infinite heat source. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but what would be that infinite heat? So, like, there was never a connection of like, why would you have these boundary conditions? Um, and then going into the atmospheric science and then being like, well, we have this boundary condition because, you know, we have temperature inversions in the atmosphere. This is a stable layer and this is this, or this is, you know, it just really
0: yeah. finally yeah, came have, together. We can't have a rod with T equals zero on one end. That's absolute zero. <laughs>
1: that doesn't work. Yeah.
0: yeah, so the atmospheric science kind of gave you oh, no, th- this is a context in which you could really apply mathematics and motivate yeah. all of those choices about boundary currents and initial conditions by, yeah. you know, physical constraints, which is fun. Yeah, hmm. it
1: was. And um, I definitely, like, I'm not the best mathematician by any means in terms of the theory, but I do, I find there's a certain part of my brain where doing math problems just really satisfies Mm. my brain. And actually I get sad that I don't use that as much anymore, just because a lot of what I do now is analyzing data and then writing about it. But yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's this space where that's right. And when you're solving a nice math problem and it all comes together, I remember one of my, it's a nice moment. Yeah. And, And I remember one of my high school math teachers, it was trigonometry and she'd showed us something, you know, on the board And then when she finished it, she's like, Oh, did you all see that? It all worked. I got goosebumps. And that's, that's such a, that was, I was glad that she shared that with us because she was really sharing that like, no, no, I genuinely really like this stuff. And it's, and so when I, so when I had similar feelings later, I didn't feel so weird. I felt like, Oh, actually, yeah, I I do really like that. And when it comes together, it's satisfying.
1: That's funny. This just triggered a memory for me, which is trigonometry was the class that really made me think I love math. And I think it was just, you basically just manipulate things and get them to work out all the time. (laughs) And I remember my, I remember my math teacher. I feel like I was on shaky ground a lot in terms of any sort of confidence in my own intelligence. Um, You know, being kind of, I've always just felt like I had to prove that I was smart enough in some ways, Mm. which is a lot of pressure. But in math, I remember my math teacher, I always felt like I approached problems differently. I did things differently. And my math teacher, I remember one time he said, I really just think, I love the way your mind works. Mm. It worked because I was talking through how to plot something or whatever it was. I just remember him being like, this is a really unique way of thinking about it. And it's fascinating to kind of see that process happening. And it it kind of actually like really resonated. It sticks with me clearly, you know, I I don't even know how long ago I graduated from high school, but (laughs) 20 years ago or something like that. Not quite.
0: Oh, that's great. A really good teacher can give you that view on yourself and can give you external perspective and give you this kind of, yeah, here's what's unique about you. And here's what's interesting about you from from an outsider perspective,
1: a totally outsider perspective. And I think I ended up having him for like two classes. And then I just, I also think, I think one of the things like for me for school always was much more collaborative for me. I loved reaching out to people and ask for help, talk about problems. And I love that about graduate school. And I, so I always saw it like science is where I belong because it's so collaborate. They always talked about group work being so important. And I, I actually think one of the things I struggle with now a lot is collaboration is important, but collaboration also is in, generally very independent. There's a lot of expectation that I just sit and think and mm. do my own work Right. And that might just be the culture of where I work or the culture of the group that I'm in. But it's one thing that I've struggled with is that I, I really do the best sitting and talking with people and thinking about yeah. problems and going and working on it and then coming back together and saying, look, what do you think about this? And where do you get this? And um, I'm constantly craving that kind of connection. Mm. And that may be one of the things I'm trying to be more intentional about is
0: yeah, Susan finding more people like,
1: did she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. i should have yeah. Susan that
0: talked about that, that Basically, she was told when she first kind of got um, a longer term type position that the advice she received was like, "Well, just sit in your office and write papers," and yeah. that, that just wasn't satisfying for her. So she started. She she reached out. She made those connections you're talking about and explored that more collaborative side, and it's it's worked out really well for her. <laughs> so
1: yeah, I mean, I still have to write some pictures. I mean,
0: but yeah.
1: I mean, okay, so I, it's hard when you think about it, but I'm doing okay in my career. I'm, I'm a fully soft bunnies funded scientist, but I have been able to get grants. People have asked me to join projects. Um, I think I try to be a good contributor to projects with it's not always successful because people are different places, and what you can contribute is different, but I try to be available, and um, I do think that aspect is a plus. It's just hard because I think it also means that I don't, I struggle when I'm expected to just, or when my job really is to sit at my desk, process data, Mm. write about it. And that's, um, so I just have to kind of find a balance. And the thing is like, and we talk about this all the time with other people, but jobs are jobs and there are really awesome aspects of everyone's jobs. And there are terrible aspects of people's jobs. And we all find, thankfully, a lot of us find, some things that other people find terrible, we find enjoyable and vice versa. And so I've been told, like, I need to find my introvert to work with who doesn't want to be the one going out there doing it, but really likes to get into the nitty gritty details and just find that collaboration where you can really um, build off of that. And maybe I just haven't found my introvert to Makes collaborate
0: sense. with. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that's a yeah. natural partnership, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I after, mean, oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying...
0: So uh, I think that collaboration
1: the, can occur with two extroverts as well and two introverts. Sure. It's not like it has to be those different personality types, yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sorry, I, I don't mean to keep stepping on you in an audio fashion. It's a little harder on Zoom to do the natural like you know to step in when there's a pause. It's a little bit more awkward, you know, but yeah, I'm also uh,
1: not good at giving people pauses. I just keep <laughs>
0: talking. I don't know. I seem to remember doing it in real life. Like maybe it's just uh, <laughs> yeah yeah. so after UCLA. You, were, you went to Colorado State. Was it right after that it's or was it. It something in between it was, yeah, CSU?
1: It was right after. And I I actually, when I mentor students, I often recommend, depends on the student. There are some people who are clearly like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to grad school. This is all I've ever wanted. And I'm like, go for it. But mm. I think I got I got a lot of advice. Like, you're smart. You ask good questions. You should go to grad school. You should go to this type of grad school. We need people like you in our field, which is not bad advice. But I do sometimes wonder if I had actually tried to get a job that wasn't academic and saw what that world was like. It might make me appreciate the world I live in more when Mm. it's, when things are bad, or it may have opened up different doors, but I felt like um, a lot of my friends, not in my program, but just my academic friends were going to graduate school. And I had been doing some research as an undergrad and I went to graduate school. I didn't really know what else to do. That's what Kind of people said it, and it worked out really wonderfully in many ways. But I do wonder if I'd had a little bit more perspective, if the graduate school part of it might have been a little easier Hmm. on me emotionally.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so that's that's where we met. That might be a good segue, right? Because that's where we met.
1: Yeah.
0: And specifically, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand. So you know, we're we're all okay. So you and I were in the same PhD program at Colorado State Atmospheric Science. I ended up working with an oceanographer there. And mm-hmm. so you and I didn't actually know each other directly in the program at first. So, no, because you, know, you
1: came in a couple of years after I had started, and you kind of know the people who are in your class cohort the best yeah. in your grads, our program at least. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things, I forget if I've talked about it on here or not, but one of the things that I definitely took advantage of at Colorado State, and I encourage like anybody, who's at a university with a good, you know, mental health kind of unit mm-hmm. a wing or whatever it's called, where you are like, take advantage of that. You're, you're already paying for it. It's there. And, you know, so I was taking advantage of that. I was, you know, seeking individual counseling. I was doing some of the group counseling stuff and, you know, you and I, that's actually where we met it was in that context.
1: Yeah. in group uh,
0: yeah. counseling at yeah. CSU. <laughs> that's right. Which was yeah. really unique. And we, we've, uh, and I think we were careful. I mean, maybe I should just let you talk a little bit. I mean, for 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 me, I'll just say what what brought me there. So, what brought me there was um, a lot of feelings of anxiety, a lot of feelings of kind of a bit feeling a bit unsure of what direction I was taking, and uh, you know, lots of struggles with those kind of kind of doubts and kind of low low mood sometimes. And that was with an amazing advisor, an amazing super supportive advisor, and living in a beautiful place, and you know trying to get outside as much as I could. But you know grad school is is a, can be really difficult uh, from a mental health standpoint. Um, it's it can be such a because uh, you know when you're just coming out of university, I think what you were getting at is like you don't necessarily have a ton of life experience yet. No. And you have, <laughs> no.
1: I knew how to. They- I knew how to go to school. That's like, that's what I knew how to do. So I kept going to school because that's, that made the most sense. That sounded the most logical. And I got to keep going to school, which I, I eventually I learned to, I I wasn't, I always didn't always love school, but eventually like school was my place where I felt like I belonged. And I got a lot of satisfaction of doing well in school. It was very validating for, Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I shouldn't have gone to grad school or like I regret this decision. It was just where I was at. But, but grad school is not like undergrad. It's not like high school. No. It's no. a very different problem that that while being a good student doesn't always actually translate into being a good researcher or being good at school. So, yeah. Um, so I, I joined because I also have, um, I have a lot of... I'm kind of an anxious person, hmm. worry mm-hmm. about a lot of things. I grew up, my mother was a worrier. It's kind of just how I think about it. I, I'm i not going to say I always uh, catastrophize everything and think about the worst case scenario, but I definitely can think about long down the road of all the problems that will happen and not all of the positive things that will happen. And mm-hmm. so I, at some point, um, just was really unhappy in grad school. And I had, um, I had a different type of advisor than you did. And mm-hmm. it's hard to always see the benefits, but he was supportive in his own way, incredibly intelligent, really was always had a door open. So I had opportunities that a lot of people didn't. He allowed me to travel. Mm -hmm. He enjoyed talking about physics with me, but he also wasn't one that um, assigned tasks. I was very good at getting homework tasks done and projects done. And when school became less, when grad school became less about succeeding in classes and became more about basically just write your dissertation, that was like the next milestone. It seemed to be, was just okay we'll do all your research and defend and you know there weren't these um ingrained metrics that i was meaning i kind of started feeling like i was failing and i wasn't succeeding and i wasn't getting to where i was supposed to be fast enough or doing well enough and there was no benchmark for what is what is even good at this point and it and i would get feedback from people but i i, I didn't feel confident that they were really telling me the truth and so um i think that anxiety just made me so unhappy and i felt disconnected from people. And so I started seeing an individual therapist who recommended group counseling. And, um, I'd never done that before. I'd never seen a therapist before going Mm. to grad school. And so it was an interesting, it was definitely really interesting. And, uh, I learned a lot about myself and anxiety and how to manage that a little better. Uh, but, uh, the group counseling there was unique in the sense that they pretty much had different groups every semester. So I've, right. I've heard that you can do a group therapy through other places and that will continue for potentially years and years and years. And one of the kind of rules of group is that you don't want to have relationships with the people in group outside of group, partly right. because you can build separate relationships and that would be hard on the group dynamics. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, you you kind of a lot of it is learning how to communicate within a group and to share in this really interesting way. And so we were really respectful during that time. I don't I mean, I think we might say hi to each other at school, but we weren't taking classes together. Yeah. Um, but then but then once group ended, I think we both acknowledged that and we did have a conversation or two about it. Like, is this OK? But that we really had a lot of common ground could really support each other in grad school and became really close. I got to know your wife really well Mm -hmm. and you got to know my partner, Ben, and it just um, became like a really supportive, good relationship where we can (laughs) turn to each other when things get hard. I don't know. I like that. Um, And we have had our ups and downs and how much we talk to each other, but I do love knowing that you're always there and that you can kind of understand that the things I'm struggling with, the anxiety that, you know, But for me, I think anxiety drove a lot of my desire to succeed and to get good grades. And then in grad school, I kind of, I lost course when everything became a lot more subjective about Mm -hmm. whether you were succeeding. And I still struggle with trying to figure out what, what is success for me? Because there is this academic picture of you become a professor and you have a group and you have an H index of Fifty plus, and you are invited to all of the talks, and that's like that's like the academic dream. And you have you know a family, a genealogy of graduate students who have graduated underneath you. And we talk about I don't know if any you know but other people must do this. You talk about your academic family. Yeah, it's like my advisor's advisor is like my grand advisor. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I get where that's coming from. It can start to feel a little bizarre, but I understand where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah, you meet people yeah. who are like, oh, this person's my uncle, my academic uncle. uncle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, or something, you know, it's just silly. Yeah. It's just, you know, how we do this stuff. And um, and so I think a lot of this is like redefining what success is for me in science. How do I contribute? And that's where I kind of feel like remembering the incremental piece, it's yeah. okay. And honestly, the people who have the profound, amazing changes or the ones, you know, like they've worked on small things and worked on other things until they get there. And some of it is luck. And I mean, it's not completely luck. It's not like you would just grab someone off the street who could discover the ozone hole. It is, you know, but it's being in that position in that time and then also just having a creative way to think about something and mm-hmm. it just happens and it doesn't, but everyone's working hard and some people are going to have small increments and some are going to have larger and. Um,
0: yeah. I wanted to, yeah. to speak a little bit to this, you mentioned, you know, in undergrad and in high school, going back further, it's a bit, it's a lot easier to tell if you're succeeding or not, if you're kind yeah. of working at the level that you need to be working at. And it's yeah. an obvious thought in hindsight, but I didn't put this thought, this thought didn't come to me, you know, until after I was out of, uh, of kind of undergrad. And I started doing some teaching, you know, some undergraduate teaching at some point after I got my master's and. Uh, when I was kind of putting those courses together and looking at things from things from the instructor standpoint, it became really obvious that like, Oh, a a good course is designed for you to succeed in it. It's designed to have a, you, you know, the, whoever designs the course has carved out a pathway of like, well, if they do these things, they will have succeeded and can get an A. And then, but yeah. the trouble when you hit the frontier of human knowledge is nobody has done that because we haven't. Yeah, when you hit that, and that's that's grad school and that's research of like nobody's done this yet. No, nobody's, you know,
1: yeah, covered
0: any of the ground. Actually,
1: and that's actually one of the areas that I struggle in still is like. I feel like because so much of my learning, even there, here, you know, where I'm at now, I've been a research scientist now for seven years and I got my PhD, but still a lot of my education was this path carved out. And I still sometimes wonder when I learn something, it's hard for me to remember, like once it's in my brain, I feel like it's just in the world. Like if I know something, the world knows this thing, right? Because I learned it and I have to remember like, oh, I I, I learned this thing. Like I did the work to find this. And if I don't share that with people, then they don't know it. They don't know That's this right. is true. They just, it's just, so I have to really sometimes have this logical discussion with myself where I say, just because I know it doesn't mean it's in the collective knowledge.
0: Yes. But before, yeah.
1: when I was in school, once I knew something, I knew it because someone taught it to me or someone showed right. me to that path and showed me to learn how to learn this thing. And so, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an expert at this, but it's a philosophical thing I think about a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, now you, you become the expert in the things that you have discovered and the things you've learned, but we're not used to, that's right. You get used to feeling like learning is just catching up. And so it's, it psychologically can be difficult to make that shift into like, no, no, now learning is you have made new knowledge And you now need to. Yeah, you've
1: connected little piece. You've connected the puzzle pieces in a new way. I feel like that's what I end up ultimately doing right now is connect Mm -hmm. the puzzle pieces in a new way that people hadn't done or found this new little piece over there. And you know, do I have like hopes that someday it's going to be a bigger thing? Maybe, but I think I've talked to you about this a little bit and other people that there is this creative process in doing science, and I think we often Mm -hmm. acknowledge like artists and actors and musicians suffer like they suffer for their art and they have they have these droughts where things just aren't coming creatively and I think in science people often confuse science with this like task-based thing like you're going to do x y and z and you're going to get this result and that's what school was you're going to do x y and z and you're going to get this result and it's going to go well and I think I'm still learning that process of having to do it over and over and over again and finding Passion or creativity in new areas to really be pushing that forefront, and I think it takes remembering that to be like, "Oh, that's right. That's why this is hard because there isn't a direct path to the answer."
0: Yeah, that's right. It has not already yeah. been carved out just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, science is is super creative. You're making something new, and yeah, the same. All the concepts that you can use in kind of writing or art or whatever the ideas of like inspiration and how do you can cultivate inspiration? How do you cultivate creativity? All of that can come into play. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. that's something that like I talked about with David Marshall a, a lot on a previous episode and also with the oceanographer Yanzika. Um, so like Yanzika is an interesting person who, uh, so his dad was an artist and kind of gave him that perspective of, how to cultivate creativity and how to simplify oh, cool you know, how to um how to simplify the world in terms of shapes and abstractions and impressions and yeah i just am yeah.
1: taking a drawing class and they're like think of the world as ovals and circles basically I'm like oh yeah. cool <laughs> <laughs> um
0: so i like to i was kind of i I, hate, I don't want to cut us off i want to make sure we have time i am kind of yeah I, needing to go i only help have with, 10 minutes though you have 10 minutes? Yeah, that's I have fine. A, I
1: have another meeting at one. So I do, I, I, I didn't, yeah. <laughs>
0: that's fine because I got to go help with bedtime in a few minutes here. So okay. that's fine. Okay, cool. So I like to end with this little series of questions about what have you learned? And there's the, oh, yeah.
1: Can I go back though before you do that real yeah, quickly? Yeah, That one of the things I want to make sure, I think there's a lot of stigma sometimes about struggling, hmm. having anxiety, feeling like you should be able to do it all your own. And I think one thing you and I both did was that we reached out to the, like, mental health care that a lot of universities um, provide Yes, and it's often free for students or very discounted. And it's also a group of people who work with students all the time. So that's like their focus area. They're not, you know, and so just to me, I mean, I did the group therapy multiple times. I saw an individual counselor. I also did um, a support group where it was basically an accountability group for writing your dissertation that was provided through my program all for free. And, without it I don't know if I would have finished grad school.
0: Yeah, um, I don't really know
1: what would have happened, but it really helped and so people should know that that's out there and if you think that's if you don't want to share with people don't share with people you're doing it but just know it's there.
0: Yes, that's right. And and the thing that you go and talk to that counseling service about doesn't necessarily have to be academic. It can be something right. personal that you're dealing with or something emotional that you're dealing with. Um, I worked with a, an amazing counselor. She's not there anymore, but her name's Josie Cook. Um, and uh, when I was at Colorado State, I worked, I worked, I worked through some, some what I consider some pretty serious stuff with her. And simply having somebody to listen to, uh, to listen to me, simply having like somebody there in the in the room as a neutral kind of sounding board was super helpful. Um, and I, I really. I'm so thankful that that resource was available to me while I was in yeah. grade school. Um, so yeah, I'm, I love that you said that. And I love that you emphasized don't, don't, there shouldn't be this stigma around struggling and there shouldn't be a stigma around, you know, seeking mental health, getting services, help, getting help. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a kind of self care, you know, it's a kind of self care. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. you know, I'm looking at my, what have you learned questions? Was that, was that a, uh, are you happy? That's all Is I, wanted, that to that that I wanted, wanted to say. I just wanted
1: to make sure that that was out there. Yeah. I'm
0: glad you did. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Um. So, but but when I'm looking at my what have you learned questions, I feel like we've covered it all because you know it's like what have you learned about science that you didn't know before. Um. I don't know if there's an extra answer you'd want to give. We talked about the creative aspect of it. But yeah. maybe I should give you. You know, we can. What do you think? Was there something think- about science? Yeah.
1: That I've learned. Um, One of the things I think I've really learned is, so going to a kind of a traditional atmospheric science program, I thought of interdisciplinary science as like people who study radiation working with climate variability and aerosol scientists working with different things or you, I mean, or more broadly physicists working with biologists. But I think what I'm really realizing is like the true hard interdisciplinary work is crossing science with humans. And that's Mm -hmm. where climate change really comes into play because it's a human problem we cause the problem and we also have to adapt and or mitigate and or live with the problem. And, um, that really becomes, because I always thought because I was so interested in that side of it, that collaborative work and interdisciplinary work would just be easy because I'm interested. It's actually, it's actually really hard to do a deeply integrated interdisciplinary project. It takes patience. It takes people coming to the table with, um, kind of like shutting their egos at the door, being open to learning new things, being open to standing up for what they know. And um, it's just a process that I'm not an expert in, but I'm, I've learned is a really different type of scientific process. And that's kind of where I think a lot of my work is going to be moving nice. forward is figuring out how to build that community and that kind of relationship to really get that piece going in my, mm-hmm. my career. Yeah.
0: How about what's something you've learned about? This can be the last one. And I'm only going to ask this one because of how we met and some of the other conversations we've had. But what's something you've learned about taking care of yourself that you didn't know before, (laughs) that you didn't know a few years ago?
1: I didn't know that exercise is probably one of the best things for my brain. I could read a million books about that, but I have learned now that to help manage my anxiety, I find cardiovascular exercise is really good. And I can, if I don't exercise for a few days, I'm not addicted to exercise. I really prefer to watch Netflix and eat cookies. I'm one of those people, but um, I've learned now that getting out for a run, getting out for a bike ride, getting out there and getting my heart rate going, it's amazing how the pieces start to fall back into place. And instead of the world exploding, I can kind of calm down and focus on the task at hand. And that allows me to do what I actually think is sometimes can be a really stressful, very internal job. So I've learned that about myself and my care. I've also, i still struggle with this is like, sometimes it's okay to put yourself first. Mm. It's okay to tell collaborators, people you work with, your family, no. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> hard thing for me. You don't have to volunteer to lead or to do everything. Yes. Um, you can just play a smaller role and that's okay
0: it's a boundary you set a boundary for yourself and yeah I didn't even know this word
1: I don't think I knew what the word boundary meant until I did counseling so (laughs) (laughs) now it has a different meaning
0: boundary boundary condition yeah
1: yeah
0: your boundary condition yeah. I'm gonna let you go because you said you've got four minutes from now. So I'm gonna. To... Yeah, I do. I
1: need to eat lunch. So fortunately, oh it's just a kickoff. It's a kickoff meeting for a new project that got funded. So it'll be fun to just talk to people.
0: Nice, cool. Thank you so yeah. much, Rachel. It's, Thanks, Dan. Really, I'm really, really happy to be friends with you. Love you. Hope we can keep talking. Too. Hope we can keep yeah, talking I hope more. So. And I hope I'll see yeah. you in person again sometime reasonably soon. <laughs> who, knows, who knows when we'll be able
1: to travel internationally again?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Take care, Rachel. That was great. Bye. Say hi to family. I will. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Dr. Rachel McCrary. Like I said in the intro, I've known Rachel a long time. She's a good friend. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to know her. I'm glad to have her in my life. And I was glad to have that opportunity to connect with her um, over Zoom and to share it with you all. We don't work in exactly the same area, obviously. Uh, but arts has always been more of a just a f- friendship of two people who happen to both work in the very broadly the same area of science. She's not on Twitter, Rachel is not on Twitter as far as I know. Um, and I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. If you want updates about the podcast, at Climate Sci Pod is what you want. Thanks for leaving ratings, thanks for leaving reviews and whatnot. Those are appreciated, and they help to the show out. And thanks for sending your suggestions along by email as well. I appreciate that. Uh, on a personal note, you know, I said I would, at the end of these, give you short personal updates. Uh, I'll keep it real short. I'm doing okay, uh, muddling through here and there, doing the lockdown life thing. Um, some days are okay, some days are less okay, some days are easy, some days are hard. Anyway, hang in there. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.